Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I am so excited for today's interview. Uh, Our guest's name is Paige Arnoff-Fenn. She is a businesswoman of the highest caliber. She went to Stanford for undergrad. She went to Harvard for her MBA. She worked at Procter & Gamble. Then she worked at Coca-Cola, small companies like that, ran uh, massive campaigns for the largest sporting events in the world, the Olympics, uh, the U.S. Treasury Department. And now she has a company called Mavens & Moguls, which helps is a PR company and works with extremely high quality, high caliber, uh, different businesses. She was in the startup world. She is a literal textbook of not only how to be successful at your career and how to love what you do and how to be really good at what you do, but also the business trends and the world as 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 it has developed in the modern day. So she speaks about having worked on Wall Street, working in you know, big corporate America, the startup boom, where she is today, and it, it's it's like fascinating. And what comes out from that, and from all of the lessons which we cover, which which includes not just how to be good at your job and how to love your job, but also how to balance your family. We two things come out which I found to be the most profound. Not to be a spoiler because she's a great storyteller, so you'll, you'll it, it's worth it for the for the listen as well. But the two points that came out was a how to love what you do, so that it's not like well, are you working? You're working like too much. Like no, like it's fun. So she talks about that and also the process to achieving greatness in anything, to build, becoming, as, as we were speaking, the conductor and, and, and how you have to start and where you have to start and that whole process. And it should give a tremendous amount of hope to anybody, to all of us, frankly, who are looking to do big things with our lives, how to be patient with the process, how to be have the right expectations and how to continue forward each day and not lose your hope. So with no further ado, I'm thrilled to have Paige Arnoff-Fenn. Thank you. Um, Paige, thank you so much for joining us today. Your story was particularly fascinating for me because you transitioned from a very structured, you know, the Wall Street and the big corporate America to the world of PR, the world of entrepreneurship. So I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit the biggest differences that you feel and why you opted for that path as opposed to just kind of climbing the corporate ladder? So it's a great question. And I think in retrospect, you can kind of look back and make sense of your career. But at the time, this was absolutely not on my radar at all. When I was a student, I looked at people like Meg Whitman or Ursula Burns as as corporate role models. I wanted to be a Fortune 500 CEO run a big global business. Can I ask you a question? That's very fascinating. Where in your like childhood or like, when did that part click in for you? So I I think I'm weird in that. So both of my grandfathers and my dad were all commercial bankers. Interesting. And and they all ran banks. Uh, My grandfather, one of my grandfathers was president of the only bank in his small town. My dad ran the biggest bank in the town I grew up in. So 
I grew up in a business family. I guess if you grow up with doctors, you want to be a doctor or you okay. grow up with lawyers. I wanted to be a business person. And banking always seemed familiar to me because I'd sit at the table with my dad or my grandpas and they would talk about things. And I was always very good with numbers. I was a very good student, especially in math. And I looked the most like my dad. So everyone always just thought I was like a chip off the old block. And I wanted to be just like him. I wanted, you know, to follow in his footsteps. He got an MBA at Harvard. I wanted to get an MBA at Harvard. He was president of a company. I wanted to be president of a company. Now I get and it. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's just, it came naturally through my DNA. Great. But I'd look at these women, these really strong women business people. And I, I, having done a summer internship in commercial banking and been an analyst on Wall Street right out of college, I realized early on, I, I was good at numbers, I was good at the job, but I didn't love the job. So when I went back to business school, I almost rebranded myself to be a marketing person. I did a, an internship at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati. And um, Cincinnati, you know, P&G is like the mecca of marketing. They invented consumer products marketing, brand management. And I absolutely loved my summer job there. And I love the fact that P&G was such a data-driven company. They loved market research and they loved to analyze data. And because I was so good with numbers and analysis, like all the roads converged. I got to use my left brain and my right brain, be creative and analytical. And I just, I loved marketing. And my first assignment at P&G, I was marketing white cloud toilet tissue, which is now Charmin Ultra. And I thought, if I'm having this much fun marketing toilet paper, like there's definitely something to this. Like, I, you know, I, I, I definitely have a, a, a natural interest. And then uh, I got promoted to work on CoverGirl Cosmetics, which they had recently acquired, and working in the beauty business, even though I'm not kind of high fashion, you know, I don't wear a lot of nail polish or lipstick or anything, but um, I just had so much fun working in a business that was not, so toilet paper is like a destination. You run out, you have to go buy more. So that, you know, that is a, a destination purchase. You're just trying to get your share of that market. Cosmetics is not that way. It's more of an impulse buy. And if you talk to any woman in the world, she probably has a drawer in her bathroom or a, uh, you know, a pocket in her purse with lots of lipsticks and nail polishes that she never wears. But what made her buy it? Why did she feel like she had to get it right then, even if she's not using it on a regular basis? So I had an even better time marketing cosmetics because you're really getting at people, people's emotional purchasing and what drives them and how do you incentivize them and, you know, encourage them to to buy so once i i got hooked in marketing i knew i had found the right path but png was an enormous company you know a hundred thousand employees and i felt a little constrained i think in that environment because you know because png had invented this category really they had a way to write a memo they had a way to do a coupon they had a right way to do packaging they had a way to do a product launch and they wanted you to follow their rules. They knew the best way. And the best part 
of working there was I got amazing training. It's like marketing boot camp. You know, I spent my, the first three plus years of my career there, and I joked that I got my MBA at Harvard, but going to, to P&G was almost like getting a PhD in marketing because you just eat, breathe, live, die marketing. And because P&G is a promote from within company, they really train and develop their younger employees and staff because that's the future of the business. A lot of companies today don't do that so much. So I'm very fortunate to have worked in a company very early in my career that invested so much in me and my knowledge and my kind of foundation in marketing. But I was getting kind of itchy there because I felt kind of boxed in. You know, I I learned how to write the memo and drop the coupon and do the product launch. And I was like, now I have to wait for my boss to be promoted so that I can be promoted. It's like, you know, a little frustrating. And I think I was always the person there that was trying to bend, break, or change the rules. And being an entrepreneur was not on my radar. I'm not even sure that was a word people used back then. Um, but I, I felt like I needed to go somewhere else and do something kind of more on my own. And I saw this opportunity. I don't think I wrote about this for the column, but there was an opportunity to go run a joint venture for the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta. And they were looking for somebody that had a finance and marketing background to run this program. And I thought, I am the perfect person for this. I worked on Wall Street. I got trained at P&G. So this was before the internet. I wrote a cover letter and sent them a resume. They had 300 applicants for the job. They interviewed seven of us and they offered me the job. Wow. And so I ran this joint venture for the 96 Olympic Games, which was incredible because the money was funded. And so it was like being an entrepreneur where I didn't have to go raise the money. I just had to execute the plan. Awesome. And I knew I could execute. So it was awesome. It was uh, the gold and silver commemorative coin program to raise money for Olympic athletes around the world. And it was a joint venture between the U.S. Olympic Committee, the Atlanta Olympic Committee, and the Treasury Department. Because um, the Treasury runs the Mint, and the Mint mints the coins. So it was, a, it was like a public-private partnership. And I worked with all the Olympic sponsors to help be a distribution vehicle to help me sell coins. We sold over $100 million of Olympic coins, which was really amazing. That's pretty and legit. The way that the Treasury Department used to market coins was strictly to coin collectors. And so they had a direct mail program and they had email, I mean, not even emails, uh, snap mail lists. And so they would send out these, you know, brochures and people would order their coin collection of the year. And I thought, you know, we had three different levels of coins. Gold were very expensive, silver were less expensive, and then we had a non-precious metal coin. So I basically came up with this program to sell the coins like a consumer product, because that's what I knew how to do, consumer products. And we sold the gold coins as more like jewelry high-end, you know, as a necklace or a money clip. We had silver coins that um, were less expensive, you know, a little more uh, you know, price sensitive. And then the non-precious metal coins, because it was the Olympics, we did a whole series of Olympic, they were almost like trading cards, where we 
put the coins in a little cardboard. Um, it was almost like a baseball card with a coin in it. And we talked about, so each coin was for a different sport. And we talked about the history of the sport. And we had, you know, facts and figures about the sport. And we sold those to kids. And then we worked with all the Olympic sponsors, Coca-Cola. At the time, it was General Mills was a sponsor. So we had all the cereal companies. Uh, Xerox was a sponsor. So I worked with each sponsor to come up with a plan of like how they could incorporate the coins. So a lot of the consumer products companies like Coke and General Mills, if you send in a number of UPC codes, if you cut the codes off your packaging and send them in, you could get a non-precious metal coin. Or the, the, a lot of the Olympic sponsors as um, gifts for their senior staff or their clients that they were gonna entertain and take to the Olympics, they gave them maybe the higher end coins as a nice memento. So we ended up selling, like I said, about over $100 million of coins, which was actually bigger than the last three coin programs combined. So the treasury loved it. They thought it was amazing. But it was just for the Olympics. So I built it up, sold the coins, and then tore it down, all within about three and a half years. And then I kind of got bitten by the dot-com bug. You know, by then I was kind of getting antsy. But because I had worked so closely with all the internet, with all the sponsors, Coca-Cola was a big sponsor. They were the top sponsor of the games. And the Coke people called me when the games ended and said, what are you going to do next? And I said, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. And they said, you need to come to Coke. Like, we had so much fun working with you. We, there's got to be a role for you. So long story short, they created a job for me to be the assistant to the chief marketing officer. And the, the CMO at the time was an amazing guy. Um, his name was is Sergio Zeman. He's a Mexican guy that had an amazing marketing career. He did New Coke and Diet Coke. So like the biggest failure and the biggest success ever in, his, in the history of marketing. And he was the top dog at, at they called him the Iacola. Wow. And um, he was looking for a number two and they, they made me that, they offered me that job. So that was an incredible opportunity. So if I got my PhD at Procter & Gamble, I got my postdoc working for Sergio. That was really a whole different education, very practical, in the trenches, and Coke is the most recognized brand in the world. It's sold in over 200 countries. It's a beloved brand. So that was incredible. But then the internet was taking off, and the man who was chairman and CEO of Coke at the time, Roberto Gazueta, sadly died of cancer. And when he died, there was a bit of a management upheaval. And my boss and several of the other top guys decided to leave when they weren't made president. So I decided to go and do something. This was like 1.0 internet. And there was an internet company out in Los Angeles in the kind of music and entertainment space. And they were looking for a head of marketing. And so I wrote a letter and I said, you know, I think at that point the internet was working. I, I think I emailed those guys and I said, you know, I see you're looking for a new head of marketing. I'd love to chat with you. And my husband was offered a job in LA. So we, he, he was going out there anyway. So long story short, I got the job and 
I, I had a ball. It, it was uh, in the music and entertainment space. In literally less than two years, we went public and we were sold to Yahoo, and it was called Yahoo Music. Uh, so that was really fun. It was the dot-com survivor. But it was back in the day when, like, Napster was there, and Napster was kind of doing a lot of stuff that might not have been legal. Like, we were completely legit. We had very, you know, smart money behind us, a great board of directors. I actually pulled Sergio from Coke onto the board, like, so that I still worked for him, even though I was at the startup. But it was really fun. And then my husband got a job on the East Coast in Boston. And we had already gone public. My shares had already vested. So we moved to the East Coast, and I became the head of marketing at a business-to-business -business portal, a spinoff of Inc. Magazine. And in less than two years, we actually were sold to Bertelsmann, which is the largest privately held media company in the world. So that was pretty awesome, too. So then I found another startup that was looking for the head of marketing, um, which at the time no one had ever heard of. It was Zipcar, which now is like a big global brand. And we also went public and were sold to Avis. So I call those my three base hits. I, got, I made a little bit of money three times. I'm not Sheryl Sandberg. None of the startups were Google, Facebook, LinkedIn. Like I didn't make $2 billion. But it was a wild ride. It was really fun. And so looking back, like I said, it's funny. I knew I wanted to run a business. I knew I wanted to build, build something. But I think what I realized at Coke, because, you know, my boss reported to the, the head guy, I was very close to the top. And I see that, like, running a public company is a really tough gig and your life is not really your own. And when I worked at Coke, I traveled about 90% of the time internationally. I was on the road. I think my passport had three extensions in it. I mean, it was, I was traveling virtually every week somewhere, you know, around the world, which sounds really glamorous until you do it for a living. <laughs> um, it was fun, but it was exhausting. But I think when the internet boom started, the 1.0 boom, it, it was like an opportunity for me to do something where I really knew what my role was in, you know, when you work for Coca-Cola had been around for 130 years, the Procter and Gamble brands I, I worked on were, you know, decades old. And I always felt like, you know, if I got hit by a bus, someone would be in my chair in two minutes and someone else could run that business and they wouldn't even know I existed. Hmm. When I worked for the startups, I was their first CMO for all those startups. I really helped define the brand. I, you know, I mean, it was my DNA in the look, the feel, the tagline. I mean, I can tell you everything, how that brand became from like birth to infancy to adolescence. So once it gets in your blood, it's like hard to go back and do it at a big company again where you're just part of a big machine. So I think I realized that that person that was always trying to bend and break and change the rules corporately, I really was pretty entrepreneurial. And that was why I was so frustrated, I think, in the corporate environment. So it's a long-winded answer to say I never knew I wanted to run my own business, but the truth is, I think I am so much happier now doing what I do. And 
after nine. So I, I got bought out of Zipcar right after nine eleven, like right at that time when there were really no marketing jobs. Marketing was the first thing that got cut pretty much universally um, across the economy just to conserve cash because of all the uncertainty. And, um, you know, I, because I had run marketing for successful startups that were all venture-backed private equity investors, those guys started calling me saying, hey, I've got another portfolio company that could use your help, and I have this project, could you come do this? And I kept thinking, why are they calling me? I'm not a consultant. I never worked on the agency side. I suck at PowerPoint. Like, why, why are they calling me? They're like, we don't need PowerPoint. We don't need another piece of advice. We need someone to roll up their sleeves and do this. You know how to do it. So I started calling all these people that I had worked with previously in my life that I loved working with. A lot of them I had hired in previous jobs. Everyone I knew had lost their job after 9-11 in marketing. The very best people were all just waiting for the economy to pick up again. So I just called people and said, hey, I've got these projects. Are you interested? Everyone was interested just to stay busy. So I had people, I had projects, and I put them together. And like I told you before, it's like I called the women the marketing mavens, the guys the marketing moguls. And that was just my working name for the group. And it kind of stuck. And then I did a, a test, a little concept test over market research over email, and people liked the name. And then I built the website. And before I knew it, we were we had clients and I never would have guessed that 17 years later I'd still be doing it all those jobs I was telling you about my longest job was three and a half years so now I've worked for myself like five times longer than I ever lasted working for anyone else and I keep joking with people if I get sick of my boss this time I'm dead because <laughs> I don't think I could come back and work for anybody ever again I would be a terrible employee but I love, I love being an entrepreneur. I've had a ball, you know, I feel very fortunate that I found a career that is really interesting and I feel like I can really help these people, help my clients get from a place where they're almost invisible and the best kept secret to uh, finding their market and helping them thrive. And that, that's really fun. Boy, that there, I have I have a couple of different directions I would love to take that with with you, which will, which will follow in in no no particular order. No um, let's let's entirely switch, and I want to come back to the business side on a, on a personal level. One of the things that's so fascinating and interesting, and I don't know if it gets easier in in you know I think everyone kind of looks looks at different eras and tries to figure out how how it works. But what's what's really interesting to me is how did you sort of balance a personal life. You mentioned on one hand, you're moving, you know, across the country back and forth because of your husband's work versus, you know, you're traveling 90% of the time. So how does one keep a very high profile, highly important position and manage the, the back end or the, the other side of their life? So I know like people always talk about balance. I don't think there is balance. I have never found balance in my life. I am not a good person to talk about that. So my husband and I have been married 26 plus years. We have no pets, no plants, and no kids. So that keeps things pretty focused. <laughs> um, but we both knew we wanted, you know, interesting careers that, that were fulfilling. Um, so we have gone through like five years after we were married, we commuted for a year because of work. Um, we both have been in periods of our career where we've had to travel a lot. Um, 
you know, I think you have to find ways that integrate the different parts of your life. So I think earlier in my career, I was very nose to the grindstone. I worked all the time. I was usually the first person in the office. You know, I had one job where I commuted 56 miles each way every day. I mean, you know, when you're young, you do what you do for the best jobs to get the experience and get the training. As you move up the food chain, you, you get maybe a little more flexibility or a little more autonomy. When you're, when you're the boss, you can kind of set more of the tone or the culture. But when you're running your own business, I feel like people say to me like, oh, you know, it's such a great company. And it's, I mean, it is a company and it is great. But I think of Mavens and Muggles more as a platform than a company. Like for me, it's a platform to do the stuff that I love doing because I love working. And, you know, my grandfathers worked until they died. I mean, I don't, I don't, I never felt like I wanted or needed to retire. Like if I want to go play golf and somebody's in town and they call me and say, let's go hit some balls, I'll go hit balls. And then I'll come back and be on the computer till 10 o'clock at night because I have to send a proposal or I want to get some emails out. I don't ever see myself retiring in a classic sense. Like, I don't want to just sit on a beach or just play golf. Like, I like the interaction. I like the stimulation. I love putting all my training and smarts into something to help advance causes that I care about. So I think the fact that I've had my own business for a while now, you know, I can pick and choose the kinds of clients I want to work with. And that's a real luxury. When I started the company, I worked with pretty much anyone who wanted to hire me because I was trying to get going. But, you know, I, I am very fortunate that I work with people I really love working with and for people I really want to help support. And that's a great position to be in. And because Mavens is more of a new generation company, you know, I'm a virtual business. I don't have any employees. We come together and form teams based on what clients need. And when the project's done, we disband and then we reform a different group for a different project. So that flexibility, you know, without all the overhead gives you a lot of ability to, to be picky. And, you know, I, I think I said this to you before, like, I've had friends that have become colleagues of mine, and then they go take jobs, and then they become my client. But we're still friends. So my day is very, it morphs from, you know, I might be having lunch with a client, but we're really friends. So we spend half the lunch talking about work, and then half the lunch talking about something gossipy and fun about friends. So it's a it's a very holistic existence. So in that way, I guess I don't again, I'm not sure I'd call it balanced because I think if somebody followed me around, they'd be exhausted. They'd say like you're always working. And I am always working, but I'm always having fun. I'm doing work I love, so it's great. I think that's such a such a phenomenal point and something that is oftentimes I think just with our culture separated and that people think, you know, I kind of want to do what I love or I want to, you know, have a financial future for myself. And it's very inspiring to hear on a couple different levels. First of all, that you can find yourself even in a large organization. And if you, what I, what I was hearing was, you know, kind of a lot of people 
talk about getting stuck in like locked in by the man, but it sounded like your perspective, at least retroactively and possibly while you're going through it was, ultimately I'm the asset, I'm learning how to do better and better at my work so that I can then kind of spring out when it's ready. So I think that that's a very important piece ultimately to get to get you to where you are today, which is you wouldn't necessarily, yes, it's technically work, but it's profoundly like it's, it's enhancing of your life. And I think that sometimes we try to make a, I guess, you know, you think about like Google and how they have, you know, a whole structure like with the gyms and the, and the restaurants within the thing, you never have to leave your office. In a way, it's kind of similar that you've been able to essentially idea, think about what works the best for you and then build a, a business around that. So that's very inspiring. And, you know, because I'm the founder and CEO of a successful business, um, I get invited to give speeches or write articles or serve on boards. And all of those opportunities are things that I love as well. And it kind of diversifies my day because I'll need to spend time to write an article or prepare a speech or go to a board meeting. But then through that, you end up meeting really interesting people. Um, I have a board thing tomorrow night, which will be, so one of the things I didn't tell you when we were talking about the job at the Olympics. So I am a huge sports fan. I've always been a kind of a, I was a good student athlete and um, used to watch the Olympics religiously as a child. I was an all-state soccer player. I was a runner. I mean, I just, I was, oh, there was a, a ball, a bat, anything that you could throw or I would play any sport anytime. I went to sports camp every summer as a kid. Um, so, and I did a sports project in business school. So through my, the theme of my life, you know, I was not, I went to Stanford for college and the level of sports at Stanford is like Olympic level sports. So I was not, I, even though I ran track and cross country in high school, I was not qualified to that the coach when I was there was the Olympic track coach I mean that was not an option for me but um so I've always been a sports fan but um even if my athletic abilities were kind of uh not world not yet world class never world class but through my love and interest in sports I got involved here in Boston Boston's a great sports town you know we're very spoiled all of our teams have won national championships every sport but there's a sports museum in Boston um, which is kind of the keeper of the flame of the history of Boston sports and um, I ended up joining their board years ago more than a decade ago and through a very funny set of circumstances um, so I was the only woman on the board when I joined and then I became the chair of the board which was kind of now there I've recruited several amazing women so. You've broken the barrier exactly and I brought a lot of great women along with me but um tomorrow night we have um, an event here in Boston and we're gonna be with Alex Cora and like the like all the stars the, all the MVPs of all the Red Sox who just won the World Series yes. a couple of months ago and we have a big dinner in a celebratory event with the sports writers who write about baseball and the athletes who play the game and are bored. So like, how great is that? It's a work event. It's a board event, but I'm like the hugest fan in the room. So that's like, that's how my lives have kind of converged. And so it's really fun. Like every day I get up and I'm excited to jump out of bed, you know, get going 
and see what how the day unfolds. But like tomorrow night, I probably won't get home till 11 o'clock at night. So you could say, wow, that's a long day. But I wouldn't want to miss anything. You know, I, I think that once I just personally, it's the same thing. I, I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, right out of out of college, I went to like rabbinical school and out of rabbinical school, I went to work at UCLA as the rabbi there. And it was the most engaging, amazing work. And I got paid pretty well to do it. Right. And, and it's just like, I tell people, it just like ruined me forever of like a normal kind of a thing. Cause it's like, I, I know that there's someone out there and I think it's so, you know, the, the speaking to you and, and I think that the time is, is ripe kind of in our culture where you can see other examples of people where that's exactly right. That, that, Work doesn't have to be horrible. And once you sort of got that taste of I'm making something where I'm in my genius space, plus that's usually where you get paid the most because that's where you can provide the most amount of value. You, you, you can't really go back in the box after you break out of it. No, I get called sometimes by executive recruiters to be the head of marketing or the head of a business. It's like, here's tons of money. You're like, no way. No, there's no way. Like, I can't imagine what you'd have to offer me to give this up. I just right. don't think I can do it. Beautiful. Um, as a as I as I, as I appreciate that, I probably cannot put multiple decades of experience into into one short question, and still frame it as the final question for now, um, which is great. And if you ever would be willing to come back and do this again, this was so awesome. Um, but I'm happy to. Thank you. Um, it, when when a person call it a company, call it an individual, someone like you said is is in their mind or in the mind of their customers, you know, the best kept secret in the world. Um, and, they're, and they're kind of struggling at how to define themselves and how to kind of speak the language that's going to get them the recognition or the capital that they need to really kind of take and have the impact they want. Is there certain building blocks and, and common themes that you would, you know, like basic questions that you would ask, or is each case kind of individual? So it's a little bit of both. Um, basically, whatever your organization is, a product, a service, a nonprofit, um, you need to know at the essence, at the core of your brand, who are you, why, why are you important, who are you important to, what benefit do you offer, what value do you offer, and at, at, when you boil it down, what are you all about? And that turns into a value proposition. And you need to know that about yourself, about your business, about your nonprofit, about your company, about anything you do. Why does it matter? And once you get through that process, which can take weeks, it could take a couple months, depending on how complicated and complex the organization is, once you've got a value proposition, then you need to create the messaging and the support points and find the right words and pictures to tell your story in a compelling way. So, you know, it's a process, I guess. And then once you get your story straight and you're feeling very comfortable, it feels very authentic, it feels like your words rolling off your tongue, now you're ready to spread the word and tell others. So I would say there's no one silver bullet that works for everybody, but we're very fortunate today to live in a world with so much technology and social media. Like everybody has a megaphone in their pocket, on their desktop, 
Like once you get your story straight, there's so many low cost things you can do to get your, your story out there. And when you're really comfortable with yourself and you really feel like you know your value, you know who your audience is, and it can be a very narrow niche. It's almost better in a way if you're really important to a small group of people because you can be very specific in your messaging. But you, you, know, you can start blogging and tweeting and build a website, do a podcast, you know, do interviews. You know, there are a million things you can do that are very cost efficient. And, you know, nobody knows once you've got your website up there and you've optimized it for search and, you know, you've got all the things to, to help get your, your story out there, people don't know if you're like a mom and pop or if you're a huge multinational company. I work out of the third floor of my house. I call it the global headquarters of <laughs> moguls. Um, but... You know, some people look at my website and they're like, wow, you're a huge organization. And I'm like, well, I'd like to think we've like, made a yes. lot of impact, but we've, we are really important to, the, to our clients, I think. But that, that's maybe all I need to be important to. So I would just say, I think there's an old New Yorker cartoon where there's a dog on the computer screen and, and the caption is, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, and he's the one typing uh, all the, you know, answering all the emails. That's kind of the way I feel. I'm like, you know, they don't know if you're, you know, the five and ten around the corner or Meg Whitman. They don't really know because I get invited to speak at a lot of conferences. You know, I've been not the head keynote. I've been a keynote, but not when when they get Christiane Amanpour or, you know, they'll get these amazing women, Erin Brockovich. I mean, I've spoken at conferences where the headliners are celebrities, politicians, like incredible women, but then they have a speaker's dinner and we all get to go to the dinner together. And so you're in the room and you're rubbing shoulders with these people. And all people know is they, they got a little Google alert on you that you're speaking at a conference with all these important people. So by definition, I must be important because why would I be invited to speak otherwise? So it starts to kind of snowball and take on a life of its own, I think, once you get all those pieces, those foundational elements in place, it's much easier to tell your story consistently in a lot of different distribution vehicles. Like, you know, I, I am very, you know, you, you can't say you do a hundred things. You need to do like two or three things really well. And that, you know, when Amazon started as a business, you, you will probably remember they were the world's largest bookseller. Yeah. That's all they did. Right. And when they started, it was like, they had to build trust with their customers that you were going to give them a credit card and they were going to send you a book. And that took a lot of trust to get that business off the ground. And you know what? It worked. And they did a great job and they had great customer service and they lived up to every promise. So then they moved into like music and videos. Like They took baby steps. And you know what? They sent that out on time. They didn't steal your credit card number. And now there is nothing in the world you wouldn't buy from Amazon. You, like they, they have keys to your house. They do your grocery shopping. They do everything for you. So if you have to look at it, I think, 
over the long haul. You're building a relationship that's going to last a long time. So it might take baby steps to get there. You know, I always tell my clients when we start working together, you know, it's like buying a house, trying to build a house where everyone's like focusing on the third story, the master suite, and they, they've already envisioned it. I said, but before we get there, we need a really good foundation. The first floor has got to be solid. The second floor is going to be great. And then we will get you your dream master suite. But you can't start at the suite. You don't get there until the other layers have been built really well. So I just try and encourage people to be kind of very strategic and thoughtful and patient. But if you do all the, the legwork, you do your homework, you know, I, somebody said to me after I started my company, you know, you, like you started right after 9-11, you're like an overnight sensation. I'm like, I worked for 25 years busting my butt right. to become an overnight sensation. Like it didn't happen overnight. Right. Right. You know, I, I, I was in the trenches, you know, in the bowels of organizations learning all the basics. Right. Then I was, you know, the head of the team and bringing all the newbies along and then built these internet companies that became big companies. And now I can do it myself. But it, I didn't start with Mavens. I started at the back of the train. Now I'm the conductor, but I was in the back of the caboose the first time. Oh man, it's it's such it's such it's such great it's such great news, and it's like you know no matter how many times people have to say it, and across all the different things, because you know there is that famous picture of, of Bezos sitting there in that little crappy desk, and you know it's an Amazon like spray paint on the wall behind him, and and you're you're right that there is such a you know I I, I guess the, I guess the bottom line is that no one's taking pictures of you when you're starting off at your at your low point, and and then, you know, the person that's getting started is trying to figure out why, you know, why they can't get that corner office. And I think that that lesson is, is, is so, is so true. It comes off as humility, but I think it's, it's also just a no, lot I'm of I'm not truth, trying you know? to be humble. I'm just telling you the truth. Right. I mean, that's how it goes. It's funny because, you know, when I, I speak, Boston has like 200 colleges and universities. So right. a lot of the talks I give, because Harvard Business School wrote a couple of cases on my company, I speak to a lot of students. And students look at, you know, you now at, at the kind of the pinnacle of your career, maybe, or close, and they say, God, you're so successful. You've always been so successful. And I always try to remind them, like, I made so many mistakes. I mean, I, I did, every, you know, everything wrong at different points in my life. And you're old enough to remember this. The students I talked to aren't. But you remember when we were kids, there was always like an A side and a B side to a record. That, yeah, 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 for sure. You bought, you bought the record for the A side, and then you had to take the B side because that's what came on the, on the back. Every successful person I know, the resume is your A side. That's what you see. And in the Harvard Business School case, guess what's in the attachment, in the addendum? My resume. You see it all. Stanford, Harvard, Proctor, the Olympics, it's all there, bright, shining lights. But there's a B-side, but they didn't put that in the case. Like, at every one of those jobs, there was a major point where I had a bad presentation, I didn't get the number right, my boss was, you know, chewing me out after the meeting that I didn't do as good of a job as he had hoped. You know, I cried at my desk. I mean, I can tell you a million stories 
that don't really like it becomes experience it becomes wisdom that got you this the ultimate success but everyone I know and I know this personally because like I said my father my grandfathers they were all really prominent in their own worlds in their communities in their jobs and I watched them at home and I know they made mistakes as my dad used to say I put my pants on one leg at a time just like the guy on the corner like we all do it the same way like I, I, I feel like it's really easy to get sucked in to you know the Wall Street Journal and all the you know publications and all these great internet stories but they don't tell the whole story and I just warn the young people like just know that if you ask somebody about when they failed if they say they didn't they're lying <laughs> they are absolutely lying because everybody's got mistakes everybody if they could turn the clock back they wouldn't necessarily change anything because all those mistakes gave you okay. great lessons and the truth is i always tell kids you learn so much more from the bad boss or the bad presentation those bad experiences teach you lessons in a way success never will when something is amazingly successful your company goes public it makes tons of money People can all take credit and pat themselves on the back, but you don't really know why it was so successful. There were a lot of things and there was some luck involved. When things go bad, most times you do a post-mortem and you figure out where did we go wrong? What did we miss? What did we forget? That's when you learn the lesson. And so don't look at them as mistakes. Don't look at it as failure. Just look at it as don't do that again and you're going to be so much more successful next time and in my experience that's totally been the case amazing Paige. thank you so much tell us a little bit how we can find you follow you learn more about your businesses etc so the best way is through the website mavensandmoguls.com it's m-a-v-e-n-s-a-n-d-m-o-g-u-l-s.com you can contact me i think you can find me on linkedin you know I'm, I'm with a name like mine, Paige Arnoff hyphen fan. When you Google me, it's really me. So you, yeah, I'm easy to find. Awesome. Amazing. I really appreciate the time. It was so much fun talking to you. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. There you have it, folks. Another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.